This morning we want to continue our series in our uh, gleanings from the book of Genesis. And so let's turn to Genesis chapter 32 this morning. We'll pick things up in verse 1. And so Jacob went on his way, and the angels of, the, of God met him. And when Jacob saw him, he said, This is the camp of, saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, sheep, uh, <clears throat> rather flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And then the messenger re messengers returned to Jacob saying, we come, came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. And so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. And then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, and the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, I will, uh, and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all uh, of the truth which you have shown your servant, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so Jacob lodged there that same night and took what came uh, to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female uh, goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels, uh, with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. And then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every uh, drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between the successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he is behind us. And so he commanded the second and the third and all who followed the droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see Esau's face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
And so the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. And he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. And then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to Jacob, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, uh, Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. And therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. And let's pray together now. Father, you tell us that if uh, we will draw nigh to you, you will always draw nigh to us. And so we draw nigh to you now from all of the different places that we are geographically and desirous of you to use your word this morning to continue to conform our lives, to continue to fashion our thinking and our doing, our perspectives, and conform us into the image of Christ. And we do pray for a work of your Holy Spirit and that you would give us the grace to hear your Spirit today in a way that would allow this great lesson that we look at this morning impact each of us and impact us in our personal relationship with you. And we pray for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This event of uh, Jacob wrestling with God is uh, doubtless the second greatest event that occurred in his life. It is second really only to his initial personal encounter with God some uh, 20 years earlier when he was fleeing home and heading toward Padan Aram where uh, the family of his mother Rebecca lived and he was fleeing for his own safety because his brother Esau's threat to uh, kill him for robbing him of his uh, birthright and his blessing as the older brother uh, at Bethel and as he made his way there from uh, 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 where he was with his family on his way to Badanaram, he received a night vision as he made a pillow out of a rock and he dreamed of a ladder that stretched all the way uh, into heaven and the angels ascending and descending uh, on the ladder. And it was there at that particular point in time where the Lord revealed himself to Jacob as the God of Abraham and Isaac, his grandfather and his father. And God proceeded to give uh, uh, Jacob great promises and told him that the Abrahamic covenant uh, would be fulfilled through him. 
and through his bloodline. And uh, God promised that the land of Canaan would be given to Jacob and his descendants, that a great uh, people would be born uh, from the bloodline of, uh, of Jacob, the Jewish people, and that his seed, his bloodline, in that bloodline, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed speaking supremely of the Messiah, of the Savior that God would send into the world through the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and now uh, Jacob, and that Messiah being Jesus himself. And then God proceeded to promise Jacob personally that he would be present with him all the days of his life, that he would protect him, and also that he would be faithful to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan. Uh, one day. And this event that occurred on that night and related to that vision uh, in, in terms of uh, Jacob's life is referred to as his conversion. It's where he had his first and uh, real personal encounter with God. And so here is Jacob, uh, born again, we might say, uh, God having uh, attached really uh, un unbelievable, incredible uh, promises to his life, unspeakable promises, and having unimaginable plans uh, for his life as well. And all of these things uh, Jacob seems to immediately have forgotten upon coming to Padan Aram and laying his eyes upon Rachel. And for the next 20 years, <clears throat> Of his life, it became uh, simply a blur uh, of marriage, of having and raising children, of, uh, of his career, working almost day and night in order to achieve some financial independence for himself and for his uh, family, some financial security. And during those 20 years, in terms of the biblical record for it, it is interesting to realize that there is, uh, Jacob never is recorded as having uttered or offered a single prayer uh, to the Lord during that entire uh, time. He's the kind of person who kind of at this point in time in his life only calls on God when his uh, circumstances are desperate. And he's not yet interested in God for the relationship. He, God is merely someone you call out on every so often when some unmanageable disaster comes into your life. And yet in all of this, and because of this attitude of his, God's plans, God's purposes for his life have been completely buried by Jacob's own goals, his own dreams, his own aspirations in life, and he is an absolute picture of, of the carnal Christian, of the nominal Christian. It's also important to uh, remember that Jacob's name means heel catcher. And he was a heel catcher both in his birth and also uh, in his uh, life. He would fight and he would use any device in order to get ahead in any dealing in his life. Uh, any manipulation that was required, any de deceit that was uh, required, he was absolutely a shyster at this time in his life. And twice, as someone has put it, he cleverly outwitted his stupid brother, speaking of uh, Esau. 
by securing the birthright to begin with, and then by securing the blessing. And all of it required the deception of his blind father. And he had even, in the course of those 20 years in Padanaram, had uh, outfoxed and uh, outwitted even his uh, uncle Laban. It's important to realize, too, concerning Jacob, that he was a very hardworking man. Uh, he was very, very industrious, very strong, very disciplined, and very, very intelligent. Uh, any situation that Jacob entered into, uh, he could simply outwork his competition, he could outthink his competition. He was the kind of man who would come into any circumstance and assess it almost instantly, almost at a glance, and immediately recognize how that circumstance could be improved. And he was a very, very gifted man, a very, very talented man. And the promises of God for his life and the plans uh, God had for his life were simply at this point of time buried under all of this. And this happens very often in the lives of many, many Christians. But God had a way of regaining Jacob's attention and the means by which to snap him out of his uh, carnal, self-willed Christianity and into a, a final kind of surrender to God's plan and purposes for his life and the means by which Jacob would be forced to uh, settle the issue of God's lordship in his life and the means by which Jacob would then uh, come to a place where he would even plead now uh, with God for the blessing of God's lordship in his life. Now, in our passage, Jacob is now returning to Canaan, returning to the land of Israel and to his family. And so after this 20-year absence, he returns, and he returns for a simple reason. God had commanded him uh, to do so. And as he makes his way toward Canaan, uh, he's still on the Jordan side of things, and uh, what is modern-day Jordan, he has this encounter with angels. And the angels are doubtless set by God, as we see in verses 1 and 2 of the chapter, to remind Jacob of the fact that God is with him and uh, that he, these angels had been dispatched to keep him uh, safe. But Jacob's big concern regarding uh, returning to Canaan is de detailed for us in verses 3 through 8 because his big concern was that it would mean facing his older brother Esau and that Esau was the great subject that loomed on uh, Jacob's mind as revealed in the fact that Esau's name is used fully nine times in the passage. And we remember the reason why he is so uh, concerned about uh, Esau. The last time Jacob had seen Esau, Esau was consoling him with himself with just one thought. And he was consoling himself with the thought that one day, uh, he would kill Jacob uh, with his bare hands. And uh, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, when she had sent Jacob away, 
uh, to return to her home at Padanaram. Uh, she promised Jacob that as soon as Esau has cooled off, as soon as he has calmed down and it's safe for you to return home, I'll get a message to you uh, that you can return home. And 20 years pass, and there's no message from, uh, uh, from Rebecca uh, for Jacob to, to return home. And here now, because Jacob is absolutely a man of action, always working the angles, always trying to work any situation in an effort to come uh, out ahead on that situation. He then sent messengers ahead of this great caravan that constituted his wealth uh, to go ahead of the slowness of the caravan and to uh, go forward in order to meet Esau and uh, try to gauge Esau's intentions towards Jacob as he had no doubt heard that he was approaching. And uh, the message that they were to carry uh, were given in verse 3. They were to inform Esau of Jacob's return from the land of Padanaram and uh, their uncle Laban, and also to inform Esau that he was returning prosperous uh, he had a family, he had great wealth, he would be no threat to Esau materially in returning to the land. And also to inform Esau in verse 5 that he came in peace, desiring uh, that uh, Esau would view him and uh, receive him favorably. Uh, the message that the, the messengers came back with is recorded for us in verse 6, and they communicated that they had indeed delivered the message to Esau, and uh, his response was to come out to meet Jacob accompanied by 400 men. And uh, Jacob's messengers uh, met Esau evidently with these 400 men far sooner than uh, they thought. Esau was already making his way toward Jacob, uh, and, and uh, the one great glaring omission in the message that they brought uh, they, was Esau's coming. He's coming with uh, 400 men, but they were missing the single great piece of information that Jacob wanted, and that was what is, what is Esau's intention with uh, these 400 uh, men. That was the great thing that Jacob wanted to know, and they failed to provide that intelligence. Jacob's response is given us there in verses 7 and 8. In his mind, of course, Esau coming toward him, accompanied by seven, uh, 400 men, could only uh, be bad news. It was an indication that Esau was intent not only upon killing Jacob, but upon uh, wiping out his family and everything that he uh, owned. And thus we're told in verse 7, he was greatly afraid and distressed. And so what he did is he then divided all of his uh, flocks and all of his herds and his uh, servants into two great companies. And he thought to himself, if Esau wipes out the one, then at least the other will survive. And, and, uh, and he's endeavoring now to cut, uh, cut his losses here. It's important to realize that when God commanded Jacob to return to Canaan, that he also promised to protect him uh, when he did come. Uh, Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers 
and to your family, and I will be with you. But Jacob still resorts to being Jacob first, and that's how he's always operated, uh, even in his relationship with God. Now, I think very, very commendably, after having done his uh, Jacoby best here, uh, he does actually take all of this to God in prayer in verses 9 through 12. And he reminds God that he is in this mess simply because he is obeying God's command for him to return uh, to Canaan. And, uh, and he then reminded God of his promise to protect uh, him and provide for him. In verse 10, he acknowledged all of God's grace and his faithfulness and goodness in, in his past. And then in verses 11 and 12, he brought to God the specific need that uh, he faced in obeying God's command to him uh, in the person of Esau and uh, with a plea for uh, deliverance. And so he reminded God of his promise to make uh, Jacob's descendants as the sand of, in the sea, of the sea in, in number. In other words, it'll be very, very hard for that to happen if I'm dead, which I anticipate is about to happen tomorrow at the hands of my brother uh, unless you intervene. And then having prayed, Jacob went right back to being Jacob and uh, taking over the control of the situation. And he comes up with this manipulative plan to uh, win over his brother Esau by means of his generosity and by means of his uh, flattery. And so he sends, uh, as we're told in verses 13 through 15, uh, uh, fully 580 animals as a gift toward Esau. And they were to be uh, divided into the five different categories that were uh, represented by uh, each of the herds and animal types. So it would be a succession of, of five different uh, gifts of animals being uh, uh, sent to Esau. I mean, to have a handful of livestock in the ancient world would make you uh, a, a upper middle class, upper class. And to, uh, 580 animals is an astonishing gift that he is giving to Esau. It gives us an idea of the extent of his wealth. And Jacob here, ever the manipulator, it isn't enough to send the 580 animals uh, in mass. Uh, he sends them in a way so as to uh, maximize their influence. And so the shepherds were to divide into the five different categories of animals. The animals were to go before the shepherd so that the first thing that would uh, meet Esau would be the gift. And then, and then only would he then see the shepherd who would then explain uh, the gift and that it came from Jacob. And all of it is just carefully orchestrated for, I mean, he's a choreographer for the absolute maximum effect in terms of uh, accomplishing his, uh, his purposes uh, here. And his aim, of course, and we would understand it in verse 20, was to appease Esau's anger and to get Esau to accept uh, Jacob to soften Esau's uh, heart. And so the waves went forward, we're told, uh, while he stayed behind in the camp there in verses 19 to 21. 
And in all of this, there's no mention of God. There's no indication at all in the passage that God has uh, any part in this, that God directed him to do uh, any of this. And of course, Jacob isn't the uh, last uh, child of God in uh, history to operate under the idea of, well, you pray, uh, and then you take charge of the situation yourself after that point. After all, God helps those who help themselves. And so that evening, Jacob then sent his wives and his children over the brook uh, Jabbok with everything else that he owned, and now he is left alone on the other side of the brook, as we see there in verses 22 through uh, 24. And the Jabbok River is kind of a small tributary that uh, feeds from the uh, modern-day Jordan side into uh, the River uh, Jordan. And having sent his family and all that he owned now over the River river Jabbok, uh, then he has made a decisive decision. He cannot come back. He has put a water barrier behind him. Esau is coming forward. He has made a commitment to go forward, whatever uh, the results might be. That evening, Jacob uh, uh, begins to wrestle with the Lord. You notice in uh, the great focus for us here this morning in verses 24 through 30. As Jacob is left alone there in verse 24, and we don't really know whether he was wanted to get alone in order to have some undistracted time to pray, or maybe he just wanted some to be alone and, and to think things through concerning uh, the next day. I'm personally inclined to believe that he prayed, and that he prayed that God would bless him, and that what ensued in terms of this wrestling match was God's answer to that prayer for blessing but it would be an answer to a prayer for blessing that would uh, take on a very very unexpected uh, form. And as he's there in the dark, and he has probably sent his family over late in the evening, probably somewhere about midnight by the time all of this begins to unfold, and remember, he's not in a a well-lit sanctuary or somewhere Uh, in the world where there's electricity and all. It's midnight, so it's a very dark situation that he's in. And in that darkness, suddenly, he feels somebody grab him forcibly and to begin to wrestle with him. And he has no idea what is, is happening, who this is. I mean, he might in his mind immediately begin to imagine Uh, that it is Esau that has kind of outflanked him and gotten to him earlier than he thought. Uh, He might have thought that uh, this is somebody sent by a scouting team of Esau uh, to come and get him before Esau's arrival. Or maybe even Laban, uh, disregarding the vow that he had made with Jacob and now deeply regretting that Jacob left with his Uh, daughters and his grandchildren and uh, all of that wealth and now come back to uh, try and force uh, Jacob uh, back. And so it is this man who initiates uh, all that it is that's uh, uh, going on here in the wrestling match. And ultimately, in verse 30, 
he comes to realize that he's wrestling with none other than God himself. Uh, in the person of Jesus Christ in what is known as a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, Jacob ended up wrestling with the man throughout the night, even to the breaking uh, of day. And again, if you start about midnight and, and all the way till dawn, and he wrestles with uh, God here, hour after hour after hour. And if you've ever done uh, any wrestling at all, you know it's one of the most strenuous, uh, grueling sports or things that you can uh, engage in. I mean, the muscles are uh, bulging, your lungs are burning for air, and uh, you're looking for leverage and uh, and, and, and you keep moving until you just simply don't have any more energy or any more strength. And there's a realization that one false move is going to uh, 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 be a mistake and end up getting you pinned. But he's not worried about being pinned. He's worried about his uh, life. At this point, he doesn't understand the intentions of, of all that is going on here. And so Jacob wrestles for hours. And the Hebrew word that is used for wrestle there uh, can also be translated dust. And so it gives us some indication of uh, the intensity of uh, the wrestling between these two. Uh, the dust that is being created on, uh, on the scene and the, the dirt that is now uh, covering them as uh, minutes turn into hours. And then in verse 25, when the man saw that uh, he did not prevail against Jacob, he caused Jacob's hip to come uh, out of its socket. And uh, when you see that phrase, when the man, speaking of the Lord, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, this doesn't mean that God couldn't have uh, ended that struggle or that fight uh, in an instant, because in a moment he is going to end it in an instant. Uh, but it speaks to, and one of the reasons that this wrestling match is allowed to go on and on and on for such a, an amazing period of time is it is given there to us for us to just see the sheer magnitude of Jacob's uh, carnal strength of his determination, of his discipline, and, and most of all, that he could not be brought to the end of himself uh, except by a supernatural means. Jacob was a very, very, very strong uh, individual. And then the Lord touched uh, the socket uh, of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. I can't even imagine the pain. I remember reading something years ago. It was about a group of guys that had decided that they were going to ride their motorcycles across the Sahara Desert. And they had trained for months and months and months for the journey and uh, uh, with all of the food and all of the physical training and, and that kind of an environment. And they got uh, two days into the trip, and one of the guys spilled his uh, motorcycle. 
And, uh, and, and in the fall, he dislocated both his shoulder and his hip. And as he described the pain of having his hip out of joint in that environment, he said, I was, I was propping myself up on the shoulder that was dislocated, and I didn't even feel that pain because of the greatness of the pain of the dislocated uh, hip. And if Jacob had not concluded at this point, uh, with his hip now removed by whoever he was wrestling with here, uh, if he hadn't concluded yet that he was wrestling with God uh, prior to this, then uh, he knew it now. And the simple fact of the matter is that God can break any of us instantly uh, if he chooses to do so. It's effortless uh, for him to do so. But Jacob still clung to the Lord, and, and he declared to the Lord that he wouldn't let him go unless the Lord blessed him, there in verse 26. And, and do not have in your mind that Jacob is continuing the wrestling match now, uh, that he is continuing now to uh, fight, so to speak, uh, with this angel, with, with the Lord here. He's not continuing uh, the fight at all. He's gone from fighting now in an instant to now just simply clinging to the Lord. And no one, of course, can wrestle effectively without the power that is found uh, in your hips. And so in an instant, he, one moment here he's wrestling with God, and the next moment his legs have gone out from under him, and now he's simply clinging to God, probably around his waist, around uh, his neck. His full weight is now uh, being borne by God. And it's kind of the same thing you would see in a boxer who has uh, spent maybe in the later rounds of a, uh, of a boxing match. And and uh, he now starts to cling to his opponent for, uh, for dear life and, and hoping for some kind of a miracle. And it's the book of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 4, that gives us real insight into the tone uh, of Jacob's heart and the tone of his voice and this plea that he makes to God and, uh, and his weeping, his crying, he's desperately clinging to God. And Hosea wrote of this scene, yes, he, that is Jacob, struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. And so Jacob pleaded with God to bless him. And in the scriptures, of course, it is always the greater who blesses the lesser. And, and now it is very clear to Jacob at this point that he is the lesser. And whatever this is that he's involved in, and it's for surely dawning upon him uh, that he is wrestling with uh, uh, God himself. And he's weeping and he's pleading with God. And I don't doubt for the first time in his life, uh, desperately aware that he can't live one more day. He can't take one more step forward. He doesn't want to live another day. Uh, without God's blessing in his life. And so all of his weeping and his pleading was an expression now of something he had never quite felt before in the course of his life, and that is his utter and complete dependence upon God. 
in this situation and in life. And the realization that he will not survive this without God and that he no longer wants the relationship with God that he has always had. Uh, He knew that uh, he could not go any further into God's calling or into God's promises or into God's plan for his life as he was. And so he surrenders to God. And with that, the entire purpose of the wrestling match is now accomplished in his life. And Jacob had been blessed in all directions in his life. His family, his flocks, his herds, material wealth, he had the birthright, and yet here he's not asking for more of any of that. He was asking for something of God himself in his life that he had never known before, that he had never experienced before. The spiritual strength with which to face the dangers of the next day. You would think that if Jacob was asking for a blessing on that scene, if he was still the old Jacob, his first concern would be for his hip. He would be crying out, and the blessing he would have cried out for would have been for a healing in his hip and yet he makes no mention of his hip, no mention of the pain of his hip, and that this great event resulted in the surrender of Jacob to God, and with it, he finally comes to the realization that a right relationship with God is not one in which we continually use him, but one in which he uses us. And that that is the purpose and the highest use of a human life. That it is to know God and to make Him known. And that light goes on now for Jacob. And that this cry of Jacob uh, to God for His blessing represents His surrender to God is made completely clear by the form of the blessing that God now imparts uh, to uh, uh, Jacob uh, in the form that it took. And God blessed him, as you notice here, in verses 27 and 28. God chooses to answer his prayer for blessing by changing his name and by now giving him a name that reflected the blessing that he sought. And God understood what he was asking for in this call for blessing. And he gives him a blessing that is now consistent with the change that has just occurred in Jacob's life. And the Lord, you notice in verse 27, asked Jacob what his name was. And it wasn't as if God didn't know. God never asks a a question in order to gain information uh, in the Bible. But he asked Jacob his name because he wants Jacob to say it. He wants Jacob to confess his name. And to not only confess his name, but to confess his character as well. And Jacob responded by saying, my name is Jacob. 
I'm the supplanter, I'm the schemer, I'm the cheat, I'm the trickster, I'm uh, the deceiver, I'm the manipulator. And, uh, and that is what my name means, and that is what I've been all of my life. And then God renamed him in verse 28, Israel. And the meaning of the name of Israel means to be governed by God. It means to be ruled by God. And he gave the reason for it in verse 28, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And how did Jacob prevail with the Lord? He prevailed through prayer and through brokenness and through a surrender uh, to God and to God's plan and purposes for his life uh, in a way that he had never done uh, before. And he had learned that Blessing in life doesn't come through manipulations. It doesn't come through human effort. But blessing in life comes by being submitted to God and being submitted, uh, surrendered to His plan and to His purposes for our lives. And when God wins in our lives, then we win. Very often people will ask me to pray related to a son or a daughter or a parent or whatever it might be. And some might be a backslidden uh, Christian or it might be someone that doesn't know the Lord. And very often I will simply pray, Lord, I pray that you would win in their life and that you would do whatever it takes for you to win. Knowing that when God wins in any of our lives and in any human life, we win and everybody wins. And the greatest blessing we can receive in life is to be ruled by God. It is to be Israel. It is to be governed by God. And whatever the cost or the process that's involved in that occurring in our lives. Jacob asked the Lord in verse 29 to tell him his name. And God declined to answer, interestingly enough. And the reason I'm convinced that he declined to answer is because uh, who he was was very, very clear to Jacob at this point, that he was none other than God. It was a question that didn't need to be answered. And so God then blessed Jacob there, we're told in verse 29, Jacob named the place Penuel, declaring, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. He named the place the face of El, the face of uh, of God. And in verses 31 and 32, he crossed over Penuel. The sun then uh, rose up upon him, and he limped on his hip. And uh, he cannot turn at this point in his life. He has no ability now, as he's had all these days of his life, no ability to uh, run or to manipulate the situation. He must now learn at this point. God has removed that capacity from him. He must learn to trust in God as he's never had to before. And that's not the end of the world, but it's the beginning of a life of rest and blessing in his life. And some of us are so strong that God has to introduce something into our lives in order to make us weak so that we cannot help but depend upon Him, 
so that we cannot uh, uh, help, but uh, it, it, it is only in that circumstance then that God can be seen in our lives. Even the Apostle Paul uh, had this kind of thing happen to him. He wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord four, the, three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The interesting thing is that Jacob will limp for the rest of his life. And his wound, the wound that he would carry for the rest of his life from this great event that brought this great surrender in his life between him and God, was a wound that would not only be apparent to him, but it was a wound that would be apparent to everyone else that would see him for the rest of his life. Jacob did not, nor would he ever, utter a single complaint over the price he had to pay in order to become Israel, in order to become ruled by God and governed by God in a way he had never known before. Because the blessing of that is worth more than all of the discipline of God we endure to become governed by God. A.W. Tozer maybe had Jacob in mind when he wrote, the devil, things, and people being what they are, it is necessary for God to use the hammer, the file, and the furnace in his holy work of preparing a saint for true sainthood. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. This was certainly true of Jacob. As somebody observed concerning this event in Jacob's life and its application to our Christian life, uh, it's put so well, allow me to read it to you. He declared, until God breaks us so that we walk with a limp, we have a tendency to view God as a benign old grandfather. Nice to have around, but not very strong. Until that time, we view obedience to God as an option available to us. But we're in control, directing things as we think best. We choose our careers, our lifestyles, and our schedules, all centered around what will make us happy. God is a nice, harmless grandfather to have around when you need him. But then the lion roars, and in one easy swipe, he cripples us. And we learn his awesome power. We learn that obedience is not an option. It's our only reasonable course of action. And it's true. 
And for some of us, it takes this kind of an event for that to be established within our lives. The psalmist in Psalm 119 put it well in verse 67. He said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God's word. And like Jacob as Christians, each and every one of us have been given great promises and great and for each of us, God has great plans for our lives. And in advancing His kingdom in this world. And when we cease to take these things as seriously as He does, He will do whatever He needs to do to get our attention, to bring us to the end of our Jacoby self, to bring us to the place where we cannot live any longer except in His will and in the life that is found there. And when God does that work within our lives, it's a good work. And anything that moves us from Jacob, the self-confident, self-dominated, striving, self-made man or woman, into Israel, to being governed by God, to being ruled by God, is a good work of God in our lives. I remember hearing someone teach on this passage one time, and before we leave the passage here this morning, I think it's important to allow this lesson to uh, search our relationship with the Lord uh, as well. To allow this entire event to ask each of us concerning our own personal relationship with God, are you a wrestler? Or are you a clinger? Are you a wrestler? Or are you a clinger in your relationship with God? It's a powerful question, actually, because it is a way to quickly gauge whether our relationship with God presently is more like Jacob or more like Israel. Constantly striving with God or peacefully being governed by Him. If you sit here where you are this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I want to speak to you for a moment. All day long, all around the world, the Holy Spirit tries to reach every single person and to draw them into a faith in Jesus Christ, into the salvation that is found in Him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And why not surrender to that work of the Holy Spirit in your life today? Why wrestle with God any longer? Why fight with God uh, any longer? Why not surrender to Him today and become governed and ruled by God? It's a funny thing sometimes how we can think and people think turning to God is like our last resort. And I don't know why we're so impressed with our own plans for our lives or impressed with what we've made of our lives, could God do any worse? Isn't it possible that God could do infinitely better than the best that we could ever do for our life? And of course, it's true that He can. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, confessed your sin to God, and invited Jesus into your heart for salvation, 
Just do it right where you're seated there today. And the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again and enter into uh, the promises of God for your life and the plan of God for your life. And nothing excels those promises and nothing excels that plan. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you so much for this passage, this famous, famous second great event in Jacob's life. And Lord, we're thankful for all of the men and women that when they come to know you, they have their Bethel experience, and they're born again, and there's that complete surrender, and they move seamlessly now in, in you being the one who rules them and governs them. But Lord, we thank you so much for this passage that speaks to so many of the rest of us who came to know you born again and yet the struggle continued. Somehow us thinking that we're smarter, we're stronger, we still had plans, we still had ideas, we still believe those plans and those ideas excelled yours and headed off as Jacob did into left field for 20 years without seeking you, lost in the American dream, lost in all of the, the demands of life and the pressures of life and the goodness even in life. And yet you have your way of breaking through in all of it and waking us up to the fact that your promises for our lives and your plan for our lives is something that you take seriously and you have your way of bringing us to a place where we take them as seriously as you do. And we thank you for that work of your Holy Spirit as needed in our lives as well. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the possibility of being ruled by God, being governed by you. And Lord, I pray and we pray for every person that is wrestling with you, every person that is fighting you, your plan, your purposes for their lives today, that they would see themselves in Jacob today. And I pray for myself first and foremost in all of it. And to see the senselessness of it, Lord, or even to recognize about their life even this morning that they are in the middle of this great wrestling match with you and that you would cause them and us to surrender and to surrender into peace and the greatness of the plan and purpose that you have for our lives. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit through your word in each of us this morning and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.